When Dana was on, he was uh, was kind of like Ricky Bobby, bro. Just like some people, however you, however you, however comfortable. Some people uh, don't understand podcasts, right? And it's just like oh, I've been joking with you, like what we do in the hall, right? Yeah, <laughs> when we're passing each other, yeah. And and the one reason I wanted to have you on is like, man, I came friends with you on Facebook, mm-hmm. and. Uh, our con- I, you, I run into people. I have an awesome conversation with them. I'm like, damn, I should have recorded that. <laughs> and I recorded all my lectures when I was in school. Right. Which I need to go through and uh, start categorizing. I never, I just saved it to hard drives, and I never went back to it after I was done with the class. So I've got dozens and dozens of Krieger lectures, Bush lectures, Duncan lectures. So it's all there. You just have to go through it yeah it's all there and i think i'll, I'll be able to reconstruct it is there a volume uh here let me get you a little more uh, actually i need less less how's that yeah we're good okay good yeah um but it uh it's got the it's sorted by date right and then uh it's so like i can look back and say okay 2011 that was a tuesday i had philosophy enlightenment philosophy religion world war ii you know, and then this is oh, the days in the semester. Oh, I'll miss that day. Right. Go to, you know, so I need to do that because I'll tell you, man, I've going, I've already gone back through my notes mm-hmm. and integrated that. But my wife has notes. And we have some of the notes the same class we took, either different times or the same. And her notes are better than mine. But um, <laughs> credit where credit is due. Sometimes we, I was telling her this the other day, I was like, sometimes we get such a small fraction of it. Right. And sometimes we get things wrong, taking notes. Like, and I've noticed that over integrating my notes in the classes I teach. Sure. So. Sure. It's probably unavoidable yeah. to a certain extent, you know. Yeah. So you, so you were saying you actually have more of a background in geography. I didn't know that until we were talking the other day. I took a lot of geography at Tech, yeah. yeah. Dude, uh, I want to have Swain on. I just need to email him at his Tech email. He doesn't have any social media or anything. Yeah. Um, what did I tell you? Physical. Uh, U.S. and Canada, Asia, Latin America. And I did a, an independent study my last semester there with what, him. What was what you do on your independent study? Uh, the cultural ecology of man-eating in sub-Saharan Africa. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, okay, so have you seen that new Woods who told me about it? Um, Actually, my buddy Colby told me about it first. I was like, I only watch Bob Breyer. He's my favorite Egyptologist. But there's a new Netflix uh, documentary called Saqqara Tomb. I haven't heard. They've been doing these ex- this excavation at Saqqara, and they found, you know, animal mummies are okay. huge in Egypt. Right. right, yeah, sure. But they found a mummified lion. Interesting. Yes, right? And I want to say, and i got to go back and look, and the guy that um, – I follow. He's got a great courses out. Bob Bryant, I just mentioned, I'm trying to get him on the pie. I've been emailing back and forth with him. <laughs> but he has a whole couple of lectures on animal mummies. Interesting. On that uh, great courses where he talks about, they also found a mummified crocodile, which is not, I've seen a, a mummified crocodile before. Have you? Yeah. Where was right? this? <laughs> um, this? They found that at the Sakara tomb as well. I've seen right. mummified crocodiles come out just listening to him and, and seeing pictures of them and studying Seems less rare, but like they were really jumping up and down about this lion mummy. Interesting. Yeah, but because uh, they didn't know what it was, They're like is this a 
some species. Like, well, then they got some imaging of it, and we're looking at the teeth. And also the wrap is like somebody took a Sharpie. I mean, it wasn't a Sharpie back then, and drew on it. Mm-hmm. Like it had like a, maybe a beetle or something here on its head, had like a little mustache looking. You know, and nowadays, I mean, you wouldn't find a lion anywhere near North Africa. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, that uh, you know, something else I was researching. This is a old. This would have been Old Kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. So even in the Old Kingdom, they were importing stuff like that. But they were also importing pygmies and dwarfs, and Bro. they were seen at that time as magical. But by the New Kingdom, they're like, we hate dwarfs. You, the king issued this proclamation. Pharaoh it's like, it was like, stop picking on the dwarfs. Like, it's, it's like, stop punishing stop. them. Stop doing this. It's like they're treating them like house elves or something. <laughs> wow. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's, there was a, uh, an Asian lion subspecies in India. Uh, a lot of people aren't aware of that, but I, last I had heard when I wrote that paper several years ago, uh, there was one very small enclave of those left. Ooh. You know, I mean, of course you have tigers and leopards in india that are more well known there was an asian lion that's almost all but extinct by this point um much like the you know the lions in north africa and the uh, the war elephants you know talking about rome and ancient oh, carthage yeah. that was a a distinct subspecies from the forest elephant or the african bush elephant that was you know native to north africa that's no longer there um we were talking about antiochus the other day were we not uh, we were yeah yeah, yeah the he, third he the, used yeah, yeah. And Tyson said he used war elephants against Ptolemy the Fourth. Yeah, at the Battle of Raphia. Yeah, yeah. And I think he may have used them against the Romans at uh, I don't know if he had them at Magnesia uh, when Scipio's little brother uh, Scipio Asi- Lucius Scipio Asiaticus later yeah. on yeah. went over and uh, and pushed all or pushed uh, Antiochus around for a while. See, this is how it all began, man. Like, one day you heard me lecturing about Scipio, and we started talking in the hall. I've told a couple of people, so I'm like, dude, Justin knows way more than me. Well, I'm like the history teacher around here. Nerds tend to find each other. Yeah. But, it's, man, it was, it was nice. I was like, yeah. And we had a conversation, and we've had about a dozen history conversations since. And uh, True story. Have you ever thought about getting your master's and teaching some classes or anything like that? I don't know that I have the patience or the temperament, yeah. quite frankly. I don't know that I am the instructor type. You know? uh, yeah. It is, it, you know, it's challenging because it's different. Like I, I enjoy way more like conversations like this. Yeah. It is, uh, Ray and I were talking about this the other day. Some people are good instructors and they're only good online because without that interaction, that's yeah. 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 yeah and I, I have to, um, the other day I was emailing a student and I was like, I'd gone back and forth them four or five times about some miscommunication they had. And it's like, really, they just hadn't come to class a couple of times. And we're trying to get everything sorted out that they had missed. And I was like, well, I saw you post this. I was like, that's a makeup for some other student. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And then I had to send them. I was like, if any of that came across as rude, I didn't mean for it to. You know, like, because sure. I was like, yeah, that doesn't concern you. I was like, mm, they could read that funny. Yeah. But it's just like some professors would not even think about, like, did they perceive that oddly? Wouldn't give it a second thought. Yeah. And uh, I've had just a couple instances of teaching, like, they're like little emotional children sometimes. <laughs> like, they, they, especially the, the concurrent students and freshmen, they'll get their feelings hurt and go talk to the boss or something. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I I don't know. I tend to worry about things in the past like that that I've said and worry about how it was taken, but I'm working on not worrying about it. You know, yeah. and just letting it roll and being who I am. Yeah. So, you know, tell me a little bit about your background, dude. Uh, everybody, when you... Were you working there when I started? I've been there three years. I was... Okay, I was originally there in January of 2016. Okay. And then stayed about half that year and then left and did other things and then came back in March of 17. I got out and I went into real estate for a while and then came back March of 17 and have been there since then. Okay. So I'm not sure when exactly you started. Around the same time. Okay. I was probably, as a matter of fact, I think I was adjuncting. Spring of 17. You know, thinking about it, I think I was there and remember you arriving. Possibly, yeah. Um, No, wait, I know I was there because I remember when Battershell retired. Yeah, yeah, I did. I I was the uh, semester before he retired. Yeah. I adjuncted. He retired, and then they they told me about it, and I applied. And, you know, I'm saying, like, luckily, Flowers did not. He applied and then withdrew. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of nervous about that because he has a Ph.D., even Mm -hmm. though it's not in history. I uh, had worked there for years. Is really not that he's not that old. He's in his fifties. Sure. I don't think he's quite sixty. Yeah. So I was like, oh man, I wonder how they're going to do this. And I, I was kind of sweating. But then he never interviewed. That's that's the thing, you know, with the teaching position, you've got to have a seat, a slot to go into. Yeah. You know, and uh, people tend to park there and stay. It. Uh, you know what blows my mind? Uh, I've had three, four, four. Uh, historians from U of A on that are either almost done with their PhD mm-hmm. or are um, just got it. Okay. And man, they go forever. And they end up doing all the work. They're teaching all the classes I want to teach right. and not get paid anything. Right. I mean, they're not teaching graduate courses, but right. like a friend of mine, Marie, she um, teaches like 4,000 level women's history and stuff I'll never get to teach really, right. unless I get a, a full-time spot. Yeah. It not a community college, right? But she makes, uh, and I'm not. I'm, let's just say she makes twenty thousand dollars a year. Okay. But she teaches as many classes as me. No benefits, and like uh, that's something that's really been bothering me about higher education is adjuncting and making these candidates a PhD or master students less so master students really do the lion's share of the labor. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Man, I mean, it'd be cool to go to PhD school, at, but man, these people are in for like seven, six, seven, seven and a half years. You're in for the long haul, yeah. When you get into that, for for sure. Um, I don't know. I just I don't think I have the patience or the tolerance to, uh, you know, especially now. I mean, I'll be forty next month. Hey, man. <laughs> you know, so you don't look it. You look healthy. Uh, well, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> especially, I got carded yesterday at a restaurant, and at this point, it's uh, flattering. Yeah. You yeah. know. I get carded periodically, and I'm like, thanks. Yeah. yeah. I'm only 33, though. Appreciate that at this point, though. The other day, uh, I went at a committee meeting, Ron, who we talking about this, and go, he's like, what's up, boy? And I was like, <laughs> dude, I was like, how much do you like and know about Jesus or Alexander the Great? And he's like, well, yeah, they're two famous people. They've done all these things. I was like, same age as me. Maybe <laughs> maybe we don't call me boy anymore. That's true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hopefully you uh, make it past 33. Unlike yeah. like those guys. That, I mean, yeah. that was the next joke I made. Yeah. Um, you know, that Bob Breyer guy was mentioning, there's a documentary on YouTube he did. It used to be on Discovery or something, but it's on YouTube called uh, The Three Kings. Okay. Where he breaks down 
the the three magi kings wise men from the right for the yeah, Jesus yeah. story. Yeah, and he goes into a miscalculation by a historian that was copied many times over about the dating. Okay, on the birth of Jesus that I'd never heard. He was talking about how uh, the original historian who who authored some of that that many people cited did not count Octavian's time that he ruled before he was declared Caesar. Gotcha. And it, it offset it. And then he also didn't count year zero. So from the time, basically, that he defeated Antony and, you know, yeah, got his yeah. hands around the whole thing, but when he actually became Caesar and Emperor and... I think it was four years later or something like that. Yeah, I'd have to... I don't recall off the top of my head, but so, there was a there was a gap there. Twenty, Yeah. So, and then there was uh, the guy he like so... It, he explained it this way. He's like, so you got 1999, 2000, mm-hmm. 2001. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that historian did not count year zero. He didn't count, he back it like we didn't count 2000. But he had this alternate sort of theory on the, on the dating of the birth of Christ that I'd never come across. And maybe everybody's changed it since then. I got to like, I'm about to start teaching uh, Christian. We just started Roman kingdom. Okay. So. Yeah. Nice. Which I love that time period. Uh, I love reading into Livy and Plutarch. and You know, the thing with the kingdom that gets frustrating for me is you can't tell how much history is underlying myth. Yeah, how much Romulus and Remus were actual historical mm-hmm. figures and how much of that is just mythical overlay. And it gets, I don't know, it gets fuzzy there and that's frustrating because I want to know these things. Me too. You know, that's the struggle for me with the study of ancient history, and Rome in particular, is there are so many things we don't know and that we will never know. It's like, hey, when did you guys get started? One year before Greece? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Convenient. Yeah. Uh, according, I think that was Livy that, that set that dating, but he was writing under Augustus. Yeah. Right? Right. Uh, years later. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, Quite a while after it actually happened. It's like, uh, have you read uh, Polybius' uh, yeah, Polybius's histories? I've, I've not read the entire uh, work, but I've read the in relation to. I've sampled it, and I'm yeah. I've, I mean to plow through the whole thing, but uh, it's on my to do list. I've sampled it, and I've um, man, there's so many good podcasts out there these days. Even Audible. I don't know if you'd use Audible for audiobooks, but they even started picking up podcasts. I was on the phone with them yesterday, like we need to recommend this history podcast. You, we see what you're listening to, and I was like, hey, whoa. whoa. Yeah, recommend to put on my list or whatever because I do that every time I call them. <laughs> and I call and return books periodically. Right. But they're like, uh, I was like, how does a man get a podcast on Audible? I was like, the reason I listen to Audible is because I heard about you on a podcast. <laughs> One of my favorite historians, is sponsor, you sponsor his, his podcast. Right, right. So, um yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, but podcasts are taking over, and there's one I follow that does Rome quite intensely. I plan on doing a intense Egypt podcast. Good idea. Egypt Unraveled. Yeah, right. yeah. So, any particular period or the whole? I want to do the whole thing. I want to do. Um, I want to do a big one all the way to the old kingdom. So I want to do pre-dynastic, prehistory, pre-dynastic Egypt, right. the Narmer Palette. Um, and also get into some other sort of side quests with like mythology and religion, get the Osiris myth and everything out. So I think I can do a th- about a three-hour episode over, over all that. It'd probably normally be like four lectures. Interesting. And then I want to do a, another big one over Napoleon. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. I've been down a big rabbit hole, been pulling from my French Revolution book from when I took that course with Krieger, mm-hmm. all my notes I ever had. I had that guy for so many courses where he went into Napoleon. 
uh, Civ, um, French Revolutionary Napoleon, um, Seminar in Ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. So, like, I've been kind of pulling and comparing and contrasting, looking at, at all my sources I have with that. And then this Bob Breyer guy, man, he goes into – see, Krieger – and he never mentions this. Krieger called the scientist – and, and the soldiers called him this, Napoleon's donkeys. So I want to do a big lecture on Denon and all of the savants gotcha. that went. Right, right, right. To me, the savants of that expedition are like talking about the philosophs of the Enlightenment. Like right. it's, it's amazing. Um, so I'll tell you, uh, off on this whole tangent of research, you ever got into the Master and Commander series? I have not. I've never read the books, but I rewatched the Russell Crowe movie the other day, and it's fantastic. <laughs> it is. It is pretty good. It's very watchable. You yeah. know, even though it's lengthy, it's uh, it's very well done. So yeah. he's like uh, Russell Crowe's character. They're like, "Yeah, what? You round Lord Nelson? What? Tell us about it." And he's like, "Yeah, he spoke to me twice. I fought with him at the Battle of the Nile." And I'm like, oh, <laughs> "Wow!" So then that got me even more interested. But man, that's a uh, that movie's about. There's apparently like half a dozen books. Interesting. And that's I just wasn't one aware. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't yeah. either. I was like, "This is a book. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look into it." And all the books are like 16 to 20 hours long. Wow! Like, I just completed the uh, first Harry Potter book on audio, and that was only eight. Yeah, and that's a pretty thick book. Right, right. So, it's uh, but man, that's such fascinating history. The naval warfare between France and Great Britain. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to confess, most of my knowledge of French military history comes from the end of the colonial period, like okay. Indochina, Algeria. You know, I'm not as big on... I would like to know more about that, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, like, pretty much I start with Vietnam and don't get a lot of right pre-contextual stuff. So have you read uh, Falls, Street Without Joy? It's on my list. You're the one who referred that to me. That's that's yeah. right. We had yeah yeah, 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 yeah. This is yeah. Again, why why you had to come be on the podcast? Fall Fall was a very bright you know guy who kind of foresaw where things were going to go if changes weren't made. You know, and he he died fairly early on. You know, he was KIA, um, fairly you know early in the conflict, but uh, he pretty much nailed the situation as it was likely to proceed as he saw it. Man, you know what I'm fascinated by. Um, well, so The Quiet American by Graham Greene. Yeah. Fascinating book. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's like, well, do I take this seriously or is this a fiction? It's technically a fiction. Uh, but A lot of things are technically fiction. but you Dispatches? Know. Did you ever read that by Hare? I've not read Dispatches. Oh, man, it's good. As a matter of fact, I think I have a copy of it here and you would be welcome to borrow it. I got the audio book, so mm-hmm. I doubt I pick up the physical. Uh, and if, if we forget, I'll try and think and bring it to you. But that was a Duncan book. Dr. Okay. Duncan. She she assigned that, and you know too. I'll say, you've been around Michael Booty very much. I don't know him. I man, he and you surprisingly, he's an English guy, but have recommended some of the same books to me. Have and we? Like he brought up the th- <laughs> uh, um, Street Without Joy, but yeah. also one called uh, Dispatches. He brought up, but uh, he's got uh, recommended me another one called The Things They Carried, which I think is a Vietnam era. Okay, and it's about things that soldiers carried with them. Just like on their put on their helmet, personage, or, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And that's an interesting thesis point. So I see that uh, that comes up in like every Vietnam book I've listened to and read. It comes up in dispatches. They talk about well, this guy had a spade uh, or a joker he'd carry with him. Or yeah, my uh, my dad's armored unit, uh, their logo emblem on the side of the tanks was a, a black ace of spades. 
mostly because the Vietnamese were superstitious about it being associated with death. Okay. So, and I've got a, I've got a pack of their uh, death guards with the, uh, it says C Company, 2nd, 34th Armor, and it's got the black ace of spades on it that, you know, you go around and leave on bodies to wow. basically freak out the NVA after the fact. That stuff very interesting to me. That's um, how these soldiers were. And dispatches is all like he makes up all the soldiers in it, but right. they're they're composites of uh, yeah. people he served with. Right, sure, sure. Uh, he mentions uh, Errol Flynn's uh Sean. son, yeah. Sean in, Flynn in that book. Mentions uh, him dying. I don't know, did they did they ever find that Sean Flynn? I don't know. I, I don't uh, I don't He think went into Cambodia, so. right? Yeah. And the Khmer Rouge got him in that. I believe that's what happened. What happened. Sean Flynn? Uh, I looked that up when I was listening to dispatches because it came up. And I mean, I think you probably saw the old school Errol Flynn, Robin Hood. Oh when yeah, you were young. dude. I grew up on that movie. Him eating yeah. the mutton at the. Errol Flynn was nuts, man. In real life, Errol Flynn was. Yeah. <laughs> Wild dude. Um, I'm trying to think of what other movies he was in that are classic like that. Oh, Captain Blood. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, he did. Uh, Toward the end there, I think the last one he did was this this movie with Trevor Howard called The Roots of Heaven, where they're like trying to stop ivory poachers in East Africa. And at that point, Flynn was pretty much washed up, you know. Yeah. He was about 50 and looked like he was, you know, approaching 80 and, <laughs> had, Fast and hard, had lived hard and it showed, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he did some movie down in Cuba with uh, like, there was a pro Castro thing called Cuban Rebel Girls. Um, look into that. Back when, you know, like the, the revolution, because Flynn died in 59, I think. Uh, so, yeah, the revolution had just concluded or was about to conclude, and Castro really hadn't turned, you know, toward the, you know, Marxism fully yet. So, I mean, he had, you know, a certain degree of support in certain quarters, people like Flynn, Hemingway, you know. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's not much of a not much of a film, but it's uh, it's interesting for Errol Flynn. <laughs> See, these are, we've done some podcasts like this. I got a buddy named Thurman who's a film connoisseur and also has, he just got his master's in history somewhat recently. Wrote a, a thesis and he did an episode on the podcast over it mm-hmm. where he, his, his thesis was about the narrative of the Kennedy assassination. The whole, he's, he, his argument was that this changing narrative and all of this, uh, this gets inserted here, this gets inserted here, and this changed public opinion with that, and the Warren Commission. He goes into the whole body of the scholarship, and he goes, and now we have the deep state. <laughs> okay. Right? Like, he basically talks about it uh, eroding and undermining uh, public opinion and basically the process of like figuring things out and i think the lack of transparency on the government's part has contributed and done more harm to that situation than just telling the truth whatever the actual truth and the people behind it may be well and two it's like the uh the the lack of transparency that comes around like so many common people know now about northwoods or paperclip or which you know and then they then those people that already are conspiratorial right take it to a whole other level and it yeah and then it just completely goes off the rails from there uh, <laughs> yeah man uh you know i will say back on this guy one person kind of got me to stop being conspiratorial about shit with several conversations but that'd be jeff woods right? oh, yeah. like he 
he just has a way of looking at it. And, and two, he, he lays it out this way every time, too. He's like, that book you read, that guy you listened to, made money off of you. And I think that's why he wrote it. <laughs> like, uh, like, so I remember one time I messaged him about who was that guy that had, he's been around since the Nixon, Roger Stone. Is it Roger? Is it Stone? Roger. He was around with Trump. They did a documentary about him. Uh, Talking about the filmmaker? Yeah. Uh, no, no, not Oliver Stone. Okay. This guy was, uh, I want to say he's even in jail right now that he got arrested and is serving a, a brief. But this guy has been harassing the system since the Nixon days. And he wrote a book, and the thesis was basically like LBJ killed Kennedy. And I'm like, <laughs> I got onto this somehow because I was doing all this research about 1968, and this podcast came up with him on. Uh, and I was like, oh, man, I believe all this. And the next thing you know, I'm like texting Jeff Woods like, dude, <laughs> did you know about this guy who knew this guy who knew LBJ's yeah. lawyer who knew I this guy? I think I figured it out. Yeah, yeah, I did. It was that. And he was like, well, let's talk about that guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know. About that guy, Brian. <laughs> well, then, too, again, with uh, I read that uh, Manson book, um, Chaos by uh i can't remember the author i didn't think it was good joe rogan was raving about it like oh it's the best book ever but it did have some good content in it and that he brought out that manson was basically going to this clinic called i believe it's the Hayde ashbury okay where they were basically doing drug experiments on hippies giving them drugs so I didn't know about that, but then this guy gets you lured in for like 11 chapters, and then he's like, it was all the CIA, it was all them, and, but he doesn't really offer any proof. Yeah. And yeah. then Woods always gives me another, he's like, read this book. Yeah. Search for the Manchurian Candidate. Or, right. You know, and, and then it goes way more in, but I, I've always been kind of fascinated by how involved the government is with scheduling the uh, illegality of drugs, while also using them on people. I read an article the other day about the CIA's uh, program back in the 50s uh, where they were dosing people without their knowledge or consent. LSD? Uh, yeah. What was yeah. the God, What was the name of that program? They finally came clean about it. Oh, man, I should know this. I just read a book on it. It was that uh, Search for the Manchurian Canyon. One guy that. who worked in the biowarfare labs wound up uh, killing himself because he didn't know what was happening to him. And he just snapped, and turns out uh, his superior was dosing him on the sly. And this guy thought he was losing his mind; he didn't know what was going on. And yeah, he uh, he jumped. Several, uh, so several agents that were just going to be like around the office, not doing anything that day, would <laughs> would dose at work. Yeah, hey, I'm trying to remember the name of the program. Oh, uh, let's let's Google it. That's uh, like I was saying before we got started. I'm trying to get everything networked in here so I could Google stuff and throw it up on that TV. Gotcha. Um, and I should, I'm embarrassed that I don't know this, but, uh, CIA drugs, uh, let's see what we got. Um, got a Wikipedia article, uh, involvement in Contra cocaine trafficking, Contra's gangs and crack. <laughs> That's peer reviewed. <laughs> Institute of policy studies. NSA archive, Contras cocaine. There's a lot in, on here about cocaine. Um, let me type in CIA uh, LSD experiments program. Uh, MK Ultra. That's the one. Yep, ah, dude. I'm so embarrassed. It, if Jeff Woods is listening to this, I I feel like I've 
fail. <laughs> because that is a big part of the uh, the spies and espionage class he teaches. Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, man, uh, I didn't know this, but uh, I was hitting him up about this. The Spartans had a spy agency called the Cryptia. Really? And if you were went from 18 to 20, you were a spy. Right? Mm. That's what you did. When you became an equal at 18... The first two years, you would spy on, on the helots and everyday uh, Spartan citizens. Yeah, it's it's funny. That's one thing. I mean, we talk a lot about Scipio. It's one thing that uh, Scipio was one of the first Roman commanders to utilize was uh, intelligence gathering and reconnaissance. Yeah. You know, uh, basically starting in Spain, you know, against the Carthaginians and the, the Celts and all that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And, you know, he, yeah, I mean, you, you in ancient times, you know, you you think about reconnaissance and intelligence gathering, that sort of thing as being a modern contemporary thing. But I mean, those guys way back there started doing it fairly early on. Darius the great did it with, uh, he had, a he added three departments, uh, office of the secretary, uh, army uh, general's position where they would rotate into the 20 districts. He had 20 districts in the empire. And, um, there is king's eyes and ears is what it was called the yep. kings and it was a it was a subset of one of these three departments that he he introduced this new way of organizing the empire that these three three different departments rotating officials in the 20 provinces but right king's eyes and ears the cryptia what was the one you mentioned uh, 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 uh scipio yeah i yeah. have to look into that yeah and you know it was the roman command system back then was baffling because you had you know, you had all volunteer armies at that point. This was before the Marian reforms, so you did not have a professional standing army. Basically, they were all, you know, people who were called up to serve, uh, not really National Guardsmen, but sort of the ancient Roman equivalent, yeah, you know. Yeah. And then they deployed, and then you had two commanders assigned most of the time who would alternate command every day. So, like, one day, you know, you'd have commander number one in charge of the army, and then the next day you'd have the other guy, and then day three it would be the first guy again. Which strikes me as a nightmare yeah. of command and control and logistics. You know, with back on Sparta, I was saying I never knew this until I just got into teaching. But they were uh, two king systems. So, like, you hear Leonidas die, and you're like, "Oh my God, they don't have a king. What are they going to do?" That's what I was thinking when I. But no, they had a the the kings had different roles. One was a more like I'm the king in the city, and the other guy was always in the field with the army. Gotcha. It's gotcha. based off how I understand it. I hope, I, and that's how I teach it. So, so you've got an administrator, and you've got a battlefield commander. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like the Romans had two consuls. You know, yeah, uh, they had you know, co-consulship. You know, going on throughout the republic until you know Caesar basically yeah. <laughs> came along. Yeah, it, it's always fascinating to me. I've tried, and I've seen to read and heard historians talk about this, but like. How Caesar Augustus is able to leverage what uh, Octavian, what Julius Caesar could not. Yeah. Like he, I mean, essentially he does the same thing. Right. Tact, tactfully, but doesn't get assassinated for it. Yeah, he was very, it's interesting to look back and see how Octavian kind of outmaneuvered everybody else and wound up as the guy at the top at the end of the day. Yeah. You know? Mark, be, Mark Anthony I being think, one of those. I think Anthony, you know, as a commander and a soldier was far more ferocious. Uh, but he was just simply outmaneuvered. You know, I need a I need to look way deeper into Anthony than I have on the surface level because I, I was reading my Kruger notes the other day and it, and he said this in the notes: greatest Roman, the greatest general Rome ever had, or something to that equivalent. And I was like, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I, this would have been, uh, you know, he would have, I guess, been referring to that time. Right. But, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's a quantifiable statement, but, man, the way he was talking about him and the way I wrote it down, and the, I remember at the time I was like, who is this dude? Yeah, I, you know, honestly, and that's, that's one reason I believe Scipio was the best all time because um, Scipio defeated Hannibal. All right, in the Carthaginians. I mean, later on, and he did it with a non-professional, non-standing army. You know, later on, you had commanders like Caesar, Pompey, Antony. Those guys came along. After the Marian reforms, they had a standing professional army. And they were facing barbarians in Germania, Gaul, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, Hannibal and the organized Carthaginian forces and their mercenaries were first rate by anybody's standards. And Rome, I mean, he was an existential threat you know, to the Republic. I mean, he was literally outside the gates of Rome, just wreaking havoc up and down the Italian peninsula. And they really didn't get a handle on him until Scipio, you know, basically just kind of forced himself in the situation. And he knew that by attacking Carthage's holdings in Spain and not attacking Hannibal in Italy itself would draw him away. And then he had to push the war to Africa to get Hannibal off the Italian peninsula. You know, what otherwise, because they were chasing Hannibal around Italy for seemed endless, you know, that you had to threaten his homeland to get him to come back home. And anyway, yeah, the point of all that is uh, they never Rome never faced a commander or a uh, an enemy force of that caliber again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Scipio was undefeated. I mean, throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Um, what was that? I'm a little fuzzy on. Um, I know we talked about this before, but that depot at Canai. What all? What all went down there? They they killed Romans till like it was yeah going, going out of style. And that was uh, see Scipio was a junior officer at Cannae. I'm thinking it was his was his father and uncle in command. Yeah, you yeah. had uh, you know Publius the elder, and then you had his uncle Naeus, who were I think part of that organization at Cannae. They were later killed in Spain hmm. before Scipio took over. But uh, yeah, Hannibal it was just wholesale slaughter. He he purely outmaneuvered and outgeneraled. The Romans. They, uh, reading the accounts of that battle, uh, the Carthaginians basically got tired of swinging their swords. You just get tired of killing people after a yeah, while. And they're, they're like, oh, we're going to take you as a prisoner. We're tired of killing <laughs> But, yeah, that that's just uh, a why. Every time I get to that, that part of the story, I'm like, right. they invaded and then did that. And then, and then the Romans still came back because I want to say like fifty thousand people or something died at Canaan or Romans, if I'm not. Yeah, casualties were massive. Yeah. You know, and then yeah, and then you had the uh, you know the Spanish campaign, and then going down to Africa, and you know, eventually culminated at Zama. But uh, that was the thing. I mean, the the Barkid brothers, you know, Hannibal and his his two brothers, and then eventually their father Hanno. Before that, uh, it's odd how the the Carthaginian forces were by and large commanded by one family you know yeah and, and a few other generals who were not blood relations to him but hamilcar uh, hannibal who was in there was another uh, uh, hasdrubal yeah 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 there were two hasdrubal there was barca and then uh gisco who was not a relative but yeah yeah man uh let's see carthaginian forces gained foothold in southern italy after this um strength uh, Carthaginians had 86,400 men, 80,000 infantry, and 6,400 cavalry. Right. Casualties, uh, let's see, Livy says uh, casualties and losses, uh, 
67,500, 48,200 killed, 19,300 captured, 14,000 escaped. Polybius says 5,700 killed to 48,000. I, you know, I tend to rely more on Polybius because Polybius, he was very close to Scipio's family. And timeline-wise, he was much closer to the events that happened in Libby. You know, Polybius came first. He knew Scipio's widow, his son, his adopted grandson, who became Scipio Africanus uh, Minor, who finally destroyed Carthage in the Third Punic War. Uh, knew him directly, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I Livy, you know, coming along later, I think Polybius is the more reliable of the two. See, this is why you should be a historian, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, so there, there's history buffs, right? Right. And most of the time, they annoy the shit out of me, especially when we <laughs> start <they>? talking <laughs> about the Civil War. Right. But, um, you know, it, history buffs of the American Civil War are, are kind of hard to deal with in my experience. But I do run into history buffs, and they never have this sort of conversation. It's not just like, oh, I'm a history nerd. Let me. They don't know who Livy and Polybius are. They don't know the primary sources. They, they might have seen some documentaries to tell you some great details, maybe read a book. So know. who do you think the finest tactical commander was in the Civil War? You got an opinion? Oh, man. Mm. What do you got? If you don't- I think it was Forrest. Forrest. Okay. At a tactical level, as yeah. a understanding movement and operations and envelopment and that sort of thing. That's yeah. Yeah, I don't even know if I have an opinion on that. I should. I yeah. I think you know the the ones you hear about. It's you had several people in the Confederacy that were promoted beyond their ability. Uh, yeah. In my opinion, Bragg, Hood, uh, those guys were very fine officers at you know lower echelons. And they got up to the top levels and were commanding armies and that sort of thing. They kind of got out of their depth, yeah. uh, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. The, all of the commanders I talk about, I'm not overly impressed by. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like when I go right. through the Civil War in class, um, even in Arkansas, like I go pretty deep in Arkansas, and yeah. I'm like, yeah. you guys need to get your shit together. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. McCulloch and Price arguing all the time. Hindman gets assassinated, like turns it into a total war, martial law. Right. Gets assassinated during Reconstruction. Right. Uh, Theophilus, Granny Theophilus Holmes, Storms Helena, just sacrifices his people. I mean, so, you know, too, it's interesting that, like, brag that they name a fort after a Confederate uh, commander. And he was, you know, at the lower levels in the, uh, what was the earlier conflict a lot of them were in? The Mexican-American War? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bragg distinguished himself in a lower level of command. You know, a lot of those guys did. Yeah, even in Arkansas. And then after after secession, you know, I mean, uh, those guys were senior to a lot of them, so they got the top jobs, and they are classic examples of being promoted beyond your abilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a little bit of a theme it seems like in our history like uh war 1812 the same thing i mentioned we're getting we're about to start the mexican-american war but uh you either had no experience you'd never led and you're taking you're invading canada right war 1812 or you're way past your prime and you got no business being in there and that was yeah that was the thing that impressed me about Forrest. you know whatever else Forrest may have been later on yeah, he was the the finest tactician and most able field commander, I believe, on either side of the whole thing. He came in, enlisted, you know, with no prior experience and uh, became just a master cavalryman 
yeah you know across mississippi and yeah uh bryce's crossroads especially the battle of bryce's crossroads uh probably his finest hour okay but uh so there's some go do some research <laughs> yeah i will see that's what i'm saying that's what i'm saying man yeah you, yeah you've got a you've got a ton of knowledge which you know um when did you get into have you always enjoyed history of this yeah ever since i was a kid dad yeah my dad majored in history at uca and has always been i don't know i grew up with that being nurtured you know with uh, history and science and all that sort of thing and you know uh, it's always been an interest and i've always just sort of read about it independently and just a, a history nerd basically you are well read too though i well, mean that's uh it's 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 always a pleasure talking with you about it. So your dad is uh, you told me briefly about his time in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, where all was he stationed? At? Uh, so he was with the C Company, Second Battalion, the Thirty Fourth Armor. He was a tank commander. They were um, that battalion was attached at various times during his tour to uh, the Hundred First Airborne, the Twenty Fifth Infantry Division, the Fifth Mechanized Infantry Division, and one more. And uh, a, B, and D companies and headquarters company were down south. C company, his unit was up north on the DMZ, basically as a speed bump in case the NVA decided to come over and, you know, do their thing. Um, C company and the 3rd of the 5th Cav, which was a mixed cav unit, uh, were up there as basically the American armored presence um, and running operations up there. So he was there December of 68 to December of 69 in uh, those uh, uppermost provinces just below the DMZ. Went through the Ashaw Valley. Only American armored unit that ever went into the Ashaw Valley yeah. in uh, June of '69 during Operation Montgomery Rendezvous, and yeah, it was. Uh, when did you say went in in '68? Yeah, December. What, what year? December. What a terrible time to be <laughs> in, man. <laughs> We've been doing a series of podcasts about '68, yeah. just as a year, right? But man, just the stuff that happened in Vietnam much and then you get into pueblo and, and the, the, the yeah. stuff to playing out internationally but right man tet right out the gates uh and tet you know for a lot of people tet was maddening because i mean tactically militarily it was a victory you know i mean the vc were broken after tet you know that was their they played their last hand oh you mentioned okay so you mentioned when we were chatting before about some of your dad's take on the cronkite yeah, and, and I agree with that take, was that, uh, you know, the VC came down, they launched Tet and just got, you know, their asses handed to them, mm-hmm. basically, and were broken as a fighting force. And, uh, you know, they asked Westmoreland, you know, that, and he said, yeah, we're, we're defeating them all over the country. I mean, yeah, they wreaked some havoc, but at the end of the day, they lost. Yeah, Cronkite kind of took that, and I don't know if he had his own aims, you know, but basically painted a different picture than what was happening on the ground mm-hmm. and that shapes public opinion yeah because uh, i mean westy they straight up asked westy and he said he gave them the unvarnished truth on the ground we're winning this thing you know we're breaking the vc and we you know they did in 68 after tet and uh cronkite goes on tv and suddenly the war is lost you know and that it's that the battle was, for hearts and minds yeah and that was the turning point you know it's which the military situation on the ground was not accurately reflected in what was conveyed to the American people, and it changed public opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I think the whole thing was – I wouldn't have gotten involved in it. <laughs> you know, I don't think we, we should have gotten involved in it. It was a piece of real estate, uh, and 
a succession of uh, you know dictators in South Vietnam that weren't worth our blood and treasure, quite frankly. Yeah. But if you're going to go there and do that, do it right out of the gate and not piecemeal and you know where it drags out for 15 years. Was and, your dad drafted? Uh, he volunteered. My, I yeah. had an uncle that I told you passed away. Uh, it was in the one nine that it, right. it died at Quang Tree, but he he volunteered. Right, and it blew my mind. Well, I interviewed my grandpa near the end of his life for an independent study I did with Woods. Yeah, right. Yeah, and my grandpa said this. He since passed away, but he said uh, I wanted him to go to Canada. I did not. My grandpa was at Vietnam at Utah Beach. And he and it blew my mind that he went through St. Lowe, Battle of the Bulge, saw Patton, challenge Rommel to a tank duel, <laughs> all this crazy shit. And then he's like, yeah, I didn't want that for him. I tried to get him to go to Canada, and he volunteered. Yeah. But, man, you hear the stories about, like, the lottery draft and stuff. Yeah. I'm always fascinated to, to hear people report how that was, waiting for your number to come up. Right, yeah. No, Dad uh, started college in fall of 67 and just uh, was restless and bored and uh, decided he wanted to do something else. So he did. Uh, he volunteered and as a volunteer had a two-year hitch instead of three uh, as opposed to getting drafted. Mm-hmm. And then uh, came back and uh, used the GI Bill to finish his bachelor's in history at UCA. So, I wonder if he had a more intense interest after getting out. Yeah, I mean, he's always been of that inclination. You know, he's like me. He's just It interests him. You know, um, and uh, yeah, it just uh, and that makes a lot of sense. Your dad getting it, being a history guy now, and in, in hindsight, it's like my dad was a, a redneck country guy, yeah. you know, from Hartman, Arkansas. Right, He's a great dude, yeah. He's super handy, can build anything. Right, but uh, we never had any historical talks growing up. You know, yeah, my dad and my grandfather were both. I mean, uh, they've got the the intellect, you know, and then they're very very capable and very bright and knew all these things, but they're also very hands-on and capable and practical. And yeah, I mean, uh, I'm very fortunate to have wonderful family that, you know, brought me along over the years and kind of nurtured that in me. Yeah. You know, did everybody we work with wants to know about your car. We're like, this dude's car is insane. <laughs> and it is. My elderly BMW. Yeah, I mean, did, all we see is a two seater sports car. Yeah. Okay. Like yeah. we're like this guy. <laughs> He's, a, he's cool. Well, it's 18 years old at this point. <laughs> That's you like know? I see the old 350Zs yeah. ro- rolling around. They still look awesome. Yeah. And they were awesome, you know, 15 yeah. years ago. My but dad, now it's a 370Z. And yeah, back in the early 70s, my dad had a 260 and a 280 Datsun Z car. Um, oh, nice. The 260 was gold and the 280 was blue and uh, sold them both and really regrets now that he didn't keep the 280. You know, and that's honestly one reason I've held on to it because I know, you know, that car – that car was the last Z3 uh, that was on a lot in Arkansas. Ah. And, see, they phased them out in 02, and they brought in the Z4. That was the last one they had in Little Rock, the dealership. And uh, they said, well, you know, we can sell you that one, or we can order you a new four. And I was like, I think I want that one. And, you know, I know if I sold it now, I could never get another one in that condition, and I would regret selling it. Yeah. So even though it cost me an arm and a leg in parts occasionally, and, you know, stocks are drying up, you know, supplies are drying up for getting replacement parts. I've just held on to it and nursed it, and it makes me happy driving it. So, yeah. Do you have any other vehicles that you I don't. Yeah. I don't. So, I need to, yeah, I, I honestly need to get something else and, you know, put that one up and drive it occasionally somewhere. 
Yeah. On dates and stuff. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. Play that card. <laughs> I need to impress somebody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, I'm, you know, my wife and I have been trying super duper hard to have kids, which, you know, uh, but now we're going to have to, I'm about to start driving her Subaru, which she left right before you got here. It was a Forester. Gotcha. Um, and then I'm going to just probably drive the old uh, old gym car that's got the wrap rotten off of it and 220,000 <laughs> miles. On. I'll probably just drive that back. It still gets 28 miles a gallon. I've yeah. replaced the motor in it. I get 27. So, nice. You know, yeah. For a big straight six, it's not bad. But, you know, it's think about that car. It's not practical in any way. It's just fun. You know, I mean, uh, going to Kroger is a problem occasionally. You know, oh, when you man. load up the passenger seat in the trunk with your groceries, but oh, uh, I didn't think about that. When you know, with that car, practicality is not really the point of the exercise. Yeah. So you got a sound system in it? Uh, just the one that came in there, the Harman Kardon. You know, the one that uh, BMW put into the factory. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, it's, I enjoy it. It it is. It's one of those things that like uh, people who don't talk with you like this at work like. <laughs> That dude, his car, have you seen it? It's just been a funny thing that's come up three or four times, like people speculating about, about your identity or whatever. The Super. enigmatic yeah. assistant registrar. <laughs> yeah. Super funny. Oh. Man, so let's let's chat uh, quickly um, about, so you, you did have a brain surgery. It's been how long ago now? It's been 18 months, a little over 18 months, yeah. yeah. Man, I first time, you're the second person that has had uh, a, a brain surgery operation had uh, th- another guest came on that had a tumor removed right um, and after he had the tumor removed had all this creativity wrote five six books really right? gave me one of the books when he came on I wonder what type and size tumor and where it was I'd have to go back to the podcast so I could shoot you the link he talks all about it but Best of my memory, it was something on the side of his head. Like in the was taken off. temporal or parietal lobes. And, yeah, yeah, and they were basically yeah. just like, yeah, hey, that's why your mom was writing all this stuff and you never wrote anything and now you do. See, that's where I got lucky was, you know, mine was in the right frontal lobe. And you get you start getting back into the recesses of the brain back there and you get into things like motor control and uh, areas that are problematic to cut into, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, more so. Yeah, usually in the frontal lobes, you've got like executive higher functions personality uh that sort of thing you know and you know, i have no deficit but uh i hear of so many people that have them uh, you know near other areas of the brain and that have a far worse outcome so i'm fortunate in that respect and so how did you tune into the fact that you might have something going on i was slightly dizzy yeah like uh like, inter- vertigo i mean what? not that violent not and it was very intermittent like um I first started noticing it summer of 2018, you know, and I noticed it in the car of all places. Like, uh, this is hard to explain, but the physics of what was happening to my body of going around curves, hitting bumps and that sort of thing felt greatly exaggerated inside my head over what was actually happening to me. Mm. And I felt like an occasional electrical wave impulse, if you will, inside my head when those things happened. And I was a little bit dizzy and off balance, you know, and I thought, yeah, maybe my inner ear, you know, my balance is a little bit off, you know, if I've got fluid in there, if something's going on, you know, so I started with an ENT and, uh, he took a look and he's like, your ears are fine. You know, he said, just to rule anything else out, why don't you go see a neurologist? Mm-hmm. So I did, you know, and took an EEG and brain waves were beautiful, perfectly normal. Um, and they did an MRI 
just uh, as a last resort, as an afterthought, and there it was. Uh, when they do an MRI on your head, is it is it just your head going the thing? They put your whole body in. Well, there? you go up in the tube, but right. it just scans, you know, head and neck basically. Okay. Uh, but you know, the, it was a, such a roller coaster the way it happened. Uh, that's never the news you expect to hear. How did, how did you, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, how did you take it? Like, doctor comes back in, tells you what's wrong. Like, how did that make you he feel? He came in very casually. And uh, he said, well, you know, we found uh, a little glioma in the right frontal lobe. So a glioma, you know, you have a, a, a group of cells in the brain called glial cells that support the neurons, you know. And one type of glial cell uh, is an astrocyte. How do you spell that? Uh, which part? Glial. Uh, G-L-I-A-L. Okay. Um, and then you have astrocytes that are glial cells that uh, support the function of the neurons uh, with nutrition and things like that, you know. Um, so that family of tumors is broadly called gliomas because they arise from the glial cells. And the particular type that I wound up having is an astrocytoma because it formed from astrocytes. So... You know, he came in, he said, well, you got this little glioma in your right frontal lobe, but it's uh, it's tiny. It's three millimeters, you know. It's it's an eighth of an inch or something like that. He said, uh, I'm going to refer you to a surgeon over at Baptist, and they're going to, they'll probably just watch it, you know. And I thought, okay. So I, and that's all the dude said. He's gone, you know. Yeah. And I thought, oh, great, you know. So that appointment was made, and, uh, you know, uh, my mom, uh, had an appointment with another physician who recommended another neurosurgeon that I actually wound up going to. Which is like one of the best in the yeah. U.S., right? Ollie Chris, he's director of the Arkansas Neuroscience Institute. Um, so ahead of that appointment, I uh, go pick up my MRI disc with the images of the films and the, the report where I had the MRI done to take with me to that appointment, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get out in the parking lot after picking that up, and I open the envelope and read the paper report, and it says three centimeters, not three millimeters. You know, I think, well, I'm I'm dead. <laughs> because it says there's a three-centimeter mass in the right frontal lobe. Margins are poorly defined. And I thought, okay, it's infiltrating surrounding tissue, and I'm I'm toast, and it's that big, you know? Uh, yeah. So so it, this is, so what you're saying is it from your first appointment to that appointment, it grew that much? No. Or he underreported it? He misspoke. The neurologist clearly did not look at the films. Oh, read the report and just misspoke centimeters to millimeters and you know that's all the difference in the world frankly so i you know i'm like falling apart at that point you know i'm starting to think about making arrangements and you know, i think i'm done so did you decide real quick did you experience any if you don't mind speaking on this stuff like any anxiety like oh, it's terrifying uh, yeah i mean it's got to be terrifying but like had you ever um had you ever felt any kind of way like this before in your whole life? Like, no, that's you know, when it's staring you in the face and you're pretty sure you're done shortly and it's going to be bad. Yeah. So I, I imagine. But I go to the appointment. Um, he takes a look at the films in another room. Then he comes in and he says, it's not three centimeters. That radiologist, you know, had it off. It's between one and one and a half. And okay. I, he said, it's, it appears to be low grade. They grade those things one through four. Um, one is uh, benign, basically. Grade two, it's you know beginning to become malignant, and at that point can start infiltrating surrounding tissues. And grades three and four, um, it's very infiltrative and diffuse. And and what grade are you? Two. 
Okay. He said it's uh, it appears to be low grade, a grade two. He said closer to a grade one than a grade three. And I'm like, okay. And he said, uh, you know, I'm going to go in there and uh, resect it. And uh, if I can get good margins and get it all, um, your prognosis is good, you know. Um, essentially normal mm-hmm. is what he said. And I said, okay. So uh, a couple of weeks later, they went in, took it out. Um, it was on the inside of the right frontal lobe above my right eye. So basically, you know, with the craniotomy, they uh, took off the right half Dude, of my Dude, I can't even – until you pointed that out, I couldn't even notice. Right there, yeah. That's perfect with your hair. Like. And it's it's eight inches long and had 40 staples in it. But, <laughs> but Did, What is this? Is this a separate scar on your eye right here? On the yeah, I, I actually got that uh, when I was a kid on a Tonka truck when I was like two. So metal. T- I had some metal Tonka trucks. Yeah, they, don't hit your cousin. They don't, they don't make them like they used to. Um, but yeah, so they went in and, uh, basically took off the right side of my forehead and, uh, it was fairly deep in the head, but not deep into the brain tissue because it was, you know, that cleft between the lobes, it was riding, it was just on the inside of the right frontal lobe there. So he basically parted the lobes. Did he what, film it? Did you watch the, it is filmed as they, yeah, every surgery they do is broadcast in a theater, uh, in the building next door for students and residents to watch live. So cool uh, so he went in and resected it off the uh, the inside of the right frontal lobe and it wound up being two centimeters when they got it out of there and then you know put my head back together and you know i woke up three hours afterward and started texting people and yeah he said that uh you know since i had no deficit pre-op um due to neuroplasticity the brain had created a pathway around that tumor and had relearned you know to do what it was doing before that that damaged area could no longer do isn't that wild? And, uh, you know, since he wasn't cutting through any healthy tissue to get to it, I should be, I should wake up the same person I was when I went under, and I did, fortunately. How um, How is recovery? You know, they, they always say, like, day three is the worst. Day three is the worst. <laughs> what, what happened on day three? That's when all the swelling reaches its peak and all that sort of thing. It's like, you know, I was freaked out at first because just from the trauma, I couldn't control the left side of my mouth and tongue. Uh, and I woke up and I thought, okay, you know, I don't, it's numb and I don't have any control here. My speech is a little slurred because, you know, my tongue doesn't work on one side. And I said, yeah, we really think that's just from uh, the trauma of what's been done. It's not a permanent issue. So they sent, uh, you know, speech therapy up to my room and gave me some exercises to do with that tongue. And after several days, it did come back. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I woke up after surgery and uh, started taking selfies and texting people. Yeah. Like three hours after they closed me up, and then on day two it really started to swell, and then by day three it got it was gnarly. Um, and I'm allergic to steroids, so they couldn't give me prednisone to keep the inflammation down, yeah. and that just made it worse. So man, I wonder, you know, I've had prednisone two times now. Yeah, and I will never take it again. It, it causes, made me feel like I was going crazy. It causes fluid to collect behind my retinas. <laughs> Oddly enough, of all things, condition called CSR, central serous retinopathy. Um, So I, you know, avoided that, which just made the swelling worse. But anyway, I had a three-day hospital stay, sent me home. Um, I took the staples out two weeks later. Um, You know, I was so excited because uh, you can't wash your hair, you know, while those things are in there. And I thought, okay, I'm finally going to scrub my hair. It's going to feel great. You know, <laughs> and I get in the shower after they pull the stables off, and I can't feel anything up there. They severed all those yeah, nerves. Yeah, yeah. How's it's, feeling now? It's, it's all like back. It. it took about a year to come back, but it's weird when you're standing in a hot shower and you can neither feel 
the temperature of the water or the sensation of the water on your scalp. That is, I had a 12-staple surgery site in my groin for an inguinal hernia repair. Yeah. Same sort of stuff. It was, a, it was a week for me before I could shower, and it was, it, I just didn't touch it for for like years. Like, in two, doing jiu-jitsu, when I, people will be in between your legs on top and try and, like, push your hips down. Right. No. Like, I got so good at stopping people from doing that to me. Keeping away from that area. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was just, like, my protection of, like, you don't get to ever. Yeah. And it's a common thing for people to to push down on that in certain positions. And uh, But, man, it's it's still, to this day, I feel uh, twinges if I run a lot. Right. I feel it feels odd. And I occasionally get a uh, a shallow twinge in my scalp, not down in the cranium, but in the skin under the surface, you know. But it took about a year um, for that sensation to come back. And uh, it felt not really like typical neuropathy, but it felt uh, I would have occasional sharp pain for those nerves regenerating, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I got out of it pretty cleanly. Um, no radiation, no chemo, since he was able to get it all uh, yeah. and got good margins. I go back every six months right now for an MRI. You said you're going back tomorrow. Going back tomorrow morning for my 18-month follow-up. Yeah, and then they said uh, over time they will stretch out those intervals mm-hmm. uh, for about five years before I'm... Have you looked at uh, other patients that have re- gone through the same thing, similar size oh, yeah. and everything? How is it for them years down the road? Uh, you know, it's odd. These things have a tendency to recur in a lot of cases, but also a lot of cases there are not complete resections. Like uh, where we were talking about earlier in the uh, other areas of the brain, they often can't get it all mm-hmm. without getting into something that can't be cut into, you know. So he says the odds of it coming back are less than the odds that it won't. And he said it's, you know, there's no part left, margins are good and all that sort of thing. And uh, he says essentially normal prognosis. And he said, uh, you know, trust what I'm telling you because I'm going to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. So that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. So you're into flying. Or you you were? Like, how how has this affected all I that? was a student pilot okay. uh, back a couple of years ago, and uh, this is this killed that. <laughs> yeah. I still I – do, do I, have I seen you still go up with other people? You I fly still... as, as air crew. Okay. Yeah, okay. like a right seat and back seat with Civil Air Patrol. Yeah. Um, How'd you get into all that? I uh, – I had a good friend who became the uh, the Arkansas Wing Commander. Uh, so Civil Air Patrol is the volunteer civilian auxiliary of the Air Force, and we do domestic missions like search and rescue and that sort of thing. Um, I had a good friend who uh, became the Arkansas Wing Commander, and I didn't know what CAP was at the time. Hmm. And then, uh, you know, just asked him about it. And, uh, you know, he sort of filled me in on what's going on, and I just went down and signed up. That's been – it'll be six years in January. Um it's very rewarding for me. I was in an odd position. I could not pass a standard military physical because I had flat feet and couldn't run very far at all. They've since been surgically corrected, but now I've got titanium in both feet. <laughs> wow. Tell so, me about that real quick. How did uh, something you've dealt with your whole life? Yeah, um, it was always there. It did not become really severely symptomatic until my early 20s. What are the symptoms? Uh, your feet just roll over, basically. Because so the, the posterior tibial tendon runs from the inside of the arch of the foot, goes up, wraps around the ankle, and goes up into your uh-huh, calf. Uh-huh. Those tendons are what keep your ankles up and aligned and create the arches in your feet. 
So in people who have, you know, acquired adult flat foot, those tendons become stretched and torn over time and the foot just collapses, you know. And uh, I always had flat feet, but it did not become, I mean, by the time I was in my early 20s, I was having difficulty walking. You know, much less do anything else. Wow. And but you wanted to, to get into them. I was about to, about to ask you if yeah. you had been in the military just no, based off everything we were talking that's about. That's what I wanted to do, and then life had other plans. So, yeah, anyway, four surgeries later and implants and all that sort of thing, the feet are corrected. Um, and, you know, through CAP, you know, we're civilian auxiliaries um, who assist with part of the domestic Air Force mission. So it scratches that itch for me to a certain degree. It allows me to get a little bit of that experience and also serve my community and my country yeah, in a worthwhile you're way. You're a civil servant. Yeah, basically. It's a civil servant sort of duty. So yeah. it, uh, yeah, it, uh, it satisfies that sort of part of me that I feel like I missed, yeah. you know? And then, uh, yeah, I was exploring being a student pilot and then had the tumor. And, you know, everyone post-op, uh, there at least is put on uh, an anticonvulsant uh, called Keppra. Mm-hmm. Um, most people present with headaches and seizures. You know that's how they find their brain tumors. I never had those. I've never had a seizure. You know, and, uh, just the other day, my guitar player uh, teacher had a seizure in this studio. Really? Yeah. We were done with our lesson, and he told me during the lesson, he's like, "I'm not feeling good," and he's telling me he had seizures. And I walked out to go get a water or something out, and I come back in, and he was. It wasn't like he went in the floor. He was just. In his chair, yeah, and he was he was having a seizure, and I was like, "Paul, you all right, dude?" And I just sat here with him until he started coming back. But man, it took him a long time. So initially, he wasn't responsive. Initially, he he was just kind of yeah doing doing this sort of weird thing with his fingers and and nodding, kind of shaking a little bit. He yeah. was setting up, and then when he he came because of back to normal, and he couldn't talk to me. He's like, yeah, and then he would just. It just took him a while before he could talk, and then he couldn't walk. And almost everyone I know who's presented with a brain tumor, they found it after a seizure. That was like the first, you know, they just got hit with a seizure out of nowhere, and, you know, that's how they found it on MRI afterward. Mm -hmm. You know, I I just didn't get to that point. I just became aware of it before, thankfully, it got, you know, and that never happened. But anyway, they put everyone post-op on an anticonvulsant called Keppra that – you know, sometimes they say when the brain is messed with, it reacts by throwing out seizures, whether you've had one before or not. When you go in there and start, you know, doing things to it, mm-hmm. it reacts that way. Do you still take this, Captain? No. Stuff? They put it on for six months, put me on it for six months, and then they did an EEG to check for seizure activity, and there was none there. So they took me off of it, which is good because it makes you you just drag. It slows everything down, basically, and you're tired all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the FAA doesn't like Kepra, so... <laughs> <laughs> so there goes my student pilot certificate. Uh, yeah. So you you don't uh, just having taken that cap, it's not even the the yeah. procedure per se. Well, I yeah, it's it's not so much the procedure or the Kepper itself. It's what the Kepper is supposed to be preventing. Hmm. Um, the FAA is very broad. They paint with a broad brush when it comes to those sort of things. Um, so by flying as air crew and you know doing some disaster relief missions and search and rescue, I get to scratch the flying itch mm-hmm. to a certain degree without being a pilot. Is that? Do you think you would have wanted to do Air Force? What branch were you interested in? I was leaning toward going in the Army because that's what my dad, you know, dad was Army. My granddad started out in the Navy in World War II and then uh, wound up in the Guard, you know, for a career after that, and uh, that was my inclination. 
you know. Um, but uh, it just wasn't to be. Yeah. So. Well, you got. It seems like you have a great attitude about it. I'd probably be talking to everybody. I'd be pissed off. I was. I didn't get to do what I wanted. Well, I was. I was for a while. <laughs> you know. But. Which yeah, man, that is. Um, but I mean, there's well, it's like potential soldier, shoulder surgery or whatever. Like life, yeah. life throws you some totally unexpected curveballs. It really does. Like I was telling my wife the other day, I was like, "Now, well, I'm a pretty healthy, dude. I never thought life would would be as complex as it currently is for me." Yeah. With like you're a young guy too. What I'm doing here, yeah, and what I'm doing at the at the university and the podcast and yeah. I just didn't think I would be this uh, divided up. I yeah, guess. yeah. Oh, I get it. When I was slightly dizzy and thought I had an inner ear problem, the last thing I thought about was a brain tumor. You know, yeah. I mean, I, nobody does. <laughs> you know, but I guess the moral of that story is: uh, pay attention to your body and your symptoms, and if you feel something weird going on, get checked. Yeah, because yeah. you never know. Because usually, by the time they catch these things, it's too late. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, somebody listening to this. The most common. Uh, brain tumor is actually the grade four, the glioblastoma, which, you know, average survival with uh, with treatment is 14 months and without treatment is like 90 days. And that's the most common because people don't, they're not aware of it until it's reached that point. Wow. So, yeah, if you feel something going on, by all means, get it looked at. Man, the older I get. So how old were you when this happened? Oh. Uh, 38? 30, yeah, I was 38 when, uh, I was 37 at the onset of symptoms and 38 when it was removed and I'm now 39. Dude, the older I get, the more parent, like since I've entered my 30s, yeah. the more I'll have something I'm like, well, I've never felt that before. Is, well. Should I, <laughs> should I go? Yeah. I've never felt this way. Like, it, you know, you start second guessing things more, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Little aches and pains that weren't there before and little odd. Yeah. 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 Well, and it takes like, it, I can see why people don't catch things. Cause like even my shoulder, I'm like, like just now yeah. a year in, I'm like, oh, I could go way over here. Like, oh, bad idea. That's it. That's it, dude. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I'm sure I'm fine. Let me do that exercise some more, you know? Yeah, yeah. Let's just work this out. Yeah. But uh, you do. You, it's like a slow process for you to realize, I guess our body is so resilient that yeah. it finds ways to Human adapt. body is an amazing thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, on every level, really. Man, uh, imagine, imagine you would have been in the ancient world and they're like, Justin. Oh, you just died. Or, <laughs> you know, well, have you, so like... Speaking of Africa, we're talking about Africa. Like uh, in Africa, like they have some of the longest running traditions of brain surgery. The Egyptians did brain surgery. Oh yeah, like uh, trepanning people and yeah, boring holes in your skull and yeah, yeah. When I was watching, so in some African villages, they still do this, and it's like ding, 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 sort of a deal, you know. Yeah, and they uh, there's that that half-baked theory out there of people that advocate trepanning that uh you know the the brain needs more room to expand and increase blood flow to increase cognition so they accomplish that by boring a hole in their skull as an expansion outlet basically there's a short film that was done like in the 60s or 70s back there where a woman sits down and trepans herself in front of a mirror under the uh the theory that it will increase her cognition um i forget the name of the film but uh yeah, there's a movement out there that uh, is dedicated to that. Here's here's one I joke about frequently. President Washington, you have a throat infection. 
yeah. we're going to need to get some of that blood out. Yeah. Bleeding. Bring like, on the leeches. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> like, but uh, We just all, need to rebalance your humors and everything's going to be fine. Humoralism. <laughs> I learned that from, from Dr. Gleason when I was in uh, it Tech. But, man, that's uh, a wild thought. But, like, I've always gone a little further with that, and it's just conjecture, I guess. But George Washington did have a minor throat infection. Yeah. They did bleed him, and he ended up dying of it. Right. That's the official cause of death. He also, I mean, you, I think, did we talk about his teeth on display at Mount Vernon? I think we have. I've been there, yeah. You've but seen I think we, Yeah, I have. Oh. Yeah. I wonder if that had anything to do with the infection. You know, I, it makes you wonder. makes you go, hmm. Just like, you know, like hygiene. Yeah. It, it just in general, like, I mean, uh, Civil War, pre-hypodermic needles, like all, all these things that, that have come along yeah. in the United States. Yeah, back when they were doing amputations in tents and using the same saw on the next guy's the last guy with no sterilization or, yeah, you know. I mean, you even look back in the ancient world, I mean, on campaigns, you know, how many of those people died on campaign from disease and illness and all that versus how many were killed in combat, you know. I mean, they based campaigns around, you know, the summer because that's when an army could move and forage and feed itself and everyone went into winter quarters. You know, just to, to sort things out. And then, you know, during the winter, a lot of those guys died. You know, I never thought about this. But and you, you hear stories about locals covering, uh, filling in wells when there's invading armies, right? Right. Pretty common. But also, I was on the Napoleon uh, research the other day, that when they marched from Alexandria to Cairo, mm-hmm. 130 miles on the desert road, not prepared, they're wearing wool. And they don't, <laughs> and they don't have, they don't have uh, <laughs> canteens with them. Yeah. So they did find some wells, but there's like, uh, I think they marched 35,000 soldiers across, and they had 55,000 soldiers total. Um, But they would would periodically get to a well, but they would empty it in minutes. And at one of these wells, 30 French soldiers committed suicide (laughs) after after the well was empty. Right. And their rations? Biscuits. Yeah. You know, so like that's uh, this one historian was talking about. He's like, imagine eating a biscuit while you're marching across the desert and you have no water. And you're dying of thirst. And, and right. it's it's like literally like there, and uh, he, the dust in the sand. Yeah. Like everything is just, oh, man. And you had, you know, in those old campaigns, you had things like cholera, you know, at water they, sources. They got, and, uh, yeah, they, yeah, they got to the Nile, jumped in, drank. Yeah, ate melons out of the water patch, and then half of them got dysentery. Oh, the yeah. next day they yeah. fought the Mamelukes. Like, yeah, there was yeah, there's all sorts of bad things, you know, latent in Africa, dengue fever, and you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you don't drink the the water unfiltered, untreated. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been I I have never gotten sick drinking, which I've never drank any water in Mexico, but I've been to Mexico a few times, and uh, the first time I went, somebody that was with us. I guess it accidentally like brushed their teeth with the water, or ac- they didn't even consume a lot of. Got it. enough of it. Super sick, man. Yeah. Like uh, just for the whole rest of the trip. Yeah, it's like you know talking about Vietnam, the uh, purification tablets. You know mm-hmm. they issue for sterilizing water, and you know made it almost as undrinkable. I mean, it was it was potable, but uh, you know you'd rather not drink it and use that stuff if you had you had an alternative. So. Man, uh, McCool and Ray, they're at the university, talk about eat. They McCool's still in, and Ray's retired. Yeah, there. yeah. But they were in the same unit. 
for a long time. They're talking about eating rations the other day, like dry rations. Oh, the MREs? Yeah, 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 MREs. Yeah. And that, they were like, just hearing them talk about it was hilarious because they were like talking about their favorite things and then like things you didn't want to get and then yeah. whether yeah. The, it, what all was in it, cigarettes, it, all this stuff. Yeah. I, wow. I've, I've eaten a lot of those things myself. Like uh, you get a case of those things, take them to deer camp or whatever and, you know, go out there. They're They've gotten better than they used to be. Like the early incarnations of the MREs and Desert Storm era and all that were pretty dismal, mm. uh, but they have improved. Um, everybody that ate them that I know was, actually loved the old sea rations in the cans. Yeah, you know that stuff was one it had moisture in it. You know, he said it was a especially dad. And my granddad said the same thing. It was a better quality ration than uh, the later, you know, stuff they developed after that. Didn't keep you know forever like the some of the dehydrated stuff, but, uh, it was better food. Yeah. So, you know, like a mummy is pretty much just a dehydrated human. Like, yeah, basically desiccated. You, yeah. You ever heard of like the part of it, uh, that they <clears throat> cure the mummy in is for 35 days is called natrum. It's like a, it occurs around, uh, water sources, certain water sources in Egypt. It's, it's pretty common. It's like a, a, a salt, that, that occurs in also a baking soda, like huh. a naturally. Okay. And they, they do, they remove your brain, your organs, all this stuff, and then they smear resin all over you, and then they put this natrum on you. Yeah. And that dries you out and uh, sucks you up. So this guy was like, hey, you know how you're able to eat blueberries in your cereal for, you know, however long they've been in there? It's because they're dehydrated like a mummy. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's, it's, yeah. Um, in 94, they did this mummification, working off Herodotus's source, all the ancient sources, really, that they could get a hold of, papyri. There's this one thing called the uh, bilingual papyri. It's actually a Roman occupation okay. from a tomb then that gives some, but like these embalmed, there were embalmer families in Egypt that kept that a state secret, pretty much, right? But they did it, and they soaked them for, in the natrium for 70 days. Okay. And there was some speculation. Should they, a bunch of places said to do it seventy days, something thirty-five, and it's at thirty-five. They're like, he still looks too gooey. But then they soaked, soaked him for seventy more, and then they tried to wrap. They went to wrap him, and they he's still a little gooey. Let's rewrap him. Well, <laughs> it's seventy days. They couldn't. So what they would do is they would they would wrap him at thirty-five. They would be so locked out. At yeah. 70, they couldn't move them into the position to be wrapped. Yeah. So they end up wrapping the mummy where it's like, yeah, yeah, like splayed out just like they laid it on the table. Just however he was when he, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I wonder if that's like, uh, you know, like down in East Africa, you have the naturally occurring soda pans. Like at uh, Amboseli and all those places, you have these massive uh, lakes, essentially, of naturally occurring soda on yeah. the ground. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's got to be the same thing. Huh. Yeah. Natrum. Uh, I can't remember. It's, it's. I think it's N A T R O M. Interesting. Natrum. But uh, yeah, this uh, when this guy Bob Breyer was doing it, he did it for like Discovery Channel. They did 1994, I think, so the year they did it. But he went out and got the natrum himself from like a collected lake. it. Yeah, like broke it up, took it, and uh, he that was part of the. Well, if you're wanting to recreate that as closely as you can, that'd be the way to do it, authentically as you can. You know, oh, yeah. replicate that process in every step, you know, I guess. It was yeah. logical. Speaking of brains, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they pulled your brain out through your nose. That yeah. sounds like a wild thing. I remember reading no, they, Herodotus's account. But they, they, Today, they remove uh, pituitary brain tumors through the sinuses. Yeah. Wow. 
because uh yeah they still still use that route for certain brain surgeries yeah man um like the you know the pituitary gland is basically right in the middle i mean it's in a terrible place to try to access and pituitary tumors are usually not you know i mean they're not malignant but they you know they press on the optic nerves in the back of the eyes and they often cause blindness and that sort of thing um so yeah to get at it they go through your your nose and your sinuses to get up mm. there in the the basically the bottom the underneath part of your brain they got to break that bone to get in i would assume Uh, i don't see how you could get around it without not you know Uh, yeah apparently they um for the whole brain they they essentially scrambled it oh yeah drained it like a like a lobotomy when they went through your eye socket with a an ice pick basically you know go in there and just stick an ice pick down the side of your eyeball and wiggle it around a little bit scramble up your frontal lobes and pull it back out and you're good to go you're cured you'll be fine yeah you ever read uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest i have not read it no so sad i, did. I mean i kind of saw the ending of it coming you've see, seen the movie that's the th- yeah i haven't seen the i don't movie. think i want to read the book for that reason <laughs> so you know that's, how it ends yeah yeah okay yeah yeah Man, um, I need to see the movie. Michael Booty and I are, have talked about doing a series of podcasts over it. Like yeah. I, I, I like I mentioned that earlier. I like doing picking like oh, let's do a podcast over the f- films of Errol Flynn. <laughs> you know, or yeah. we've been doing a series, the uh, Lost Cause Myth through film. Mm-hmm. Right, that's it's been a, a super fun one to uh, to get into. Right, it's just like uh, like we compared and contrasted Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. And gods and generals. Okay. You ever see either one of those? Uh, yeah, it's been a while, but yeah. Gods yeah. and generals are a rough watch, man. I suffered through that one. Gettysburg, man. When I was a kid, I love that movie. Well, well. And it's not as as uh, rich with some of the the lost cause myth it is uh, gods and generals. Gods and generals pretty thick with it. I saw an interesting movie a while back. It's not really in that vein, but it had a little cameo by John Bell Hood. <laughs> Oh, really? It's called In the Electric Mist. Yeah. Or like Tommy Lee Jones is a contemporary detective down in Louisiana, and he's he starts having these visions of John Bell Hood, like appearing to him, and he's a recovering alcoholic, and he's not sure if he's hallucinating these things or if he's actually seeing John Bell In Hood. the Electric Mist? Is yeah. It? Tommy and, Lee Jones. And, yeah, and John Bell Hood appears and sort of gives him advice about a, a homicide case he's working. Periodically. Like he's just sitting around, and well, there's, there's General Hood, you know. Wow. over there and gives him a little a little tidbit and kind of nudges him in one direction then he's gone and a while later he'll show back up and it was a, it was well it was an intriguing premise you know yeah man i love tommy lee jones it was, I, uh, ever since i was a kid it was levon helm as uh john bellhood oh dude i gotta watch that yeah the yeah. band yeah the band oh man from uh where was he from marvel marvel I arkansas yeah. Right. Yeah. i guess you know ray trower is the hugest band fan is he as a matter of fact i just ordered a new turntable and i'm gonna have ray on we're gonna listen to vinyls the whole time he's on he's a huge audiophile there you go right but he he'll tell you anything you want to know about the band leave on him oh leave on from turkey track arkansas <laughs> uh it's like i guess the the community or what the locals call it or something back. yeah he's he knows like so uh that song the wait talks about uh, wait a minute chester okay he's like chester was a real person so was so was this person and they lived here and that guy's burying that cemetery right right yeah, yeah it's a you gotta look that movie up it's it's yeah. interesting i've never seen when did one. it come out man it would have had to been a while it's been a few years ago not all that long uh yeah. john goodman's in it um yeah 
Levon Helm, you know, he was in that movie, The the Shooter with Mark Wahlberg. You seen that? Yeah, he was the armorer, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, he was uh, the crazy old former sniper. Yeah. And the, he goes to see him, and he grabs his hand. He, he does like that, and he goes, things ain't always what they seem, is they, Gunny? <laughs> like, as soon as he touches him, he's like, I know what you do. Yeah. yeah. So, it's... Uh, I remember then, that was maybe the first time, that movie came out in 05, and that was maybe the first time I knew who Levon Helm was. I am, you know, there's very few movies that come out these days that I really, like, enjoy. Like, in the last 15 years or so, there's just been a handful. Um, I'm an old movie buff, like 50s, 60s, 70s. What are some of your favorites? Uh, Well, if we're talking old stuff, I like the old mercenary movies, like uh, Dark of the Sun, the Rod Taylor, you know, The Wild Geese, Richard Burton. Yeah. yeah, going back, uh, a childhood favorite is the Omega Man with Charlton Heston. Okay. From yeah, Richard yeah. Matheson's I Am Legend, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I still love that movie, and it's just pure nostalgia for me, because I had an old VHS copy when I was a kid. You know what, uh, speaking of classics, I, I grew up on that I had really enjoyed the 19, I guess it would have been 59, I think it came out, uh, Spartacus. Oh, yeah. Uh, with uh, uh, 60, yeah. Yeah, 1960, yeah. yeah. Uh, who was? Uh, Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, what's another? There's a one that's little known and not very seen from 1977 called Sorcerer. Hmm. It's made by William Friedkin. Um, it's about uh, four guys on the run who have all coalesced and wound up in this little uh, South American village. And they're all, you know, like uh, running from the law, essentially. They've, you know, one is a Palestinian terrorist. One is a French uh, investment banker who's called embezzling. One is a, a driver for the mob from New Jersey. And then the fourth one's a Mexican uh, assassin. Sorcerer is what this And they, they wind up down there, and they're hired by uh, a local oil company, or actually an American company, to drive a uh, truckload of leaky dynamite cross-country and basically a suicide mission to use it to cap off a, uh, a burning well. And that movie is phenomenal. Oh, man. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad we're having this part of the conversation. And you could I'm a, not, I love film, man. You could not find it until recently, and uh, a DVD was released a few years ago, so it's at least accessible now. I found an old VHS copy from the 80s. Uh, it was recorded when I was a kid off of HBO, and it was a terrible TV copy, and that's the only copy I'd ever seen until a few years ago when it was released on DVD and Blu-ray. Man, isn't it wild to think how far we've come since VCRs? Yeah, I you know, I, yeah, I started with a VCR back in the early 80s. We had one of the first ones when the remote had a cord on it oh, and wow. had, uh, what, stop and record, I think. It had a switch, not even buttons, had a switch when you were recording. And everything else, you went up and actually punched the console. Wow. But yeah, it was. Do you remember that? Back the, in, it was 600 the, bucks the back the in tracking, the early 80s. The tracking oh, yeah. buttons or the dials yeah. that you would have to hit to, like, yeah. dial it in. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah, that VCR was like $600 in like 1982 or something like that. So adjust that for inflation. Did your old HBO copy have the... Like, you know, remember how like you... Like, so I had a Lonesome Dove copy record off TV like that. Yeah. And I watched it so many times when I was a kid. It Periodically, it would uh, like music or something. It'd have like a little hiccup in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the background. I've, yeah. I've had other VH movies that had that. I don't know if that one did or not, but I know what you're talking about. Um I guess I think it might have happened from like rewinding them too much or something. It would just have like a little yeah, like that, a little hiccup in it. That's the thing about magnetic tape is you know it's uh it degrades over time. You know, possibly it's just it's physically worn when it's rewound and all that sort of thing. And yeah, uh, how far we've come. Have you well see now? Now we're starting to understand 
disc rot. Like some of my old CDs, you can see through them. Okay. Have they been in like a damp environment? Uh, Usually I've heard that if you leave like a, a disc like that in a damp environment, it will degrade where you can have like pinholes mm-hmm. where you hold it up to a light. You can yeah, see yeah, through yeah. it, you know? On some of those music CDs, possibly. I don't know. Like my house is pure and beam, but I've got like plastic, like thick plastic underneath it on the ground to keep to keep right. some of the moisture out. But right. uh, we are on a a hill. Yeah. Right. Like it's like you go down a hill, then there's a flat spot, and that's my house, and then it keeps going down the hill. And Pleasant View over here, we're on the backside of Pleasant View, so gotcha. we're down in the valley, and it is it is kind of damp down there. Gotcha. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I could definitely see that. Degrading. So, let me ask you: Have you been watching season two of The Mandalorian? <sighs> yes. And I've what, seen. Uh, yes. I've and seen, what do you think about episodes one and two? Yeah. You know, first off, we're doing a review podcast of episode one and two on Wednesday. Well, I don't want to steal your. No, thunder, no, man. no. We'll talk about it. We'll <laughs> talk about it. But uh, so, do you think that was Boba Fett at the end? Yeah. Yeah. Me yeah, too. Yeah. Like as soon as I saw that armor. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I you, was like, you know, Bo was gonna show up, or yeah. you see my Star Wars collection over here. It's part. I, of I it. did notice that. It's yeah. part of it. Yeah, I got. I, I almost have the whole ninety-five through two thousand original trilogy re-release of the action figures. Wow, and almost all the micro machines did. Nice. So, like when I was growing up, that was like my childhood, and I did. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah. Like I, <clears throat> I tell you too, this pisses some people off when I tell them this, but. I'm going to open all those and put them on display at different different areas of the podcast. <gasps> My shocked face. I'm going to I'm going to film myself opening them just to piss people <laughs> off and upload it and be like, oh, uh, I'm playing with these." Oh, what a mean man you are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know fans are going to lose it. Yeah. But man, heads I lo- will explode all over. <laughs> I have loved The Mandalorian. I can't tell you. I watched those first season episodes. Yeah. I've season, seen all of them at least 3 times. Yeah, season 1 was great. Yeah. Um my one critique about season two is that first episode, they it got a little cheesy and campy. They went a little too far with the Western angle, I think. I agree. You know? They've uh, done that a time or two. You know, before, there was kind of a Sergio Leone spaghetti Western-esque mm-hmm. feel to this. Very lean, very, you know, well done. But they kind of took it into the realm of camp in that first episode, you know, with that we're talking about there. What do you think about the sand people? The how how they're depicting them versus how we have perceived them all the way until this show. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, in the old movies, you thought of them as just savages, you know, out there, uh, basically ignoble savages out there, you know, doing savage things. And he actually seems to have some sort of rapport. And One of them's brushing communi- the teeth of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he actually, you know, can communicate with them and all that sort of thing. So it's uh, it's interesting. I. One thing about these first two episodes kind of bothered me. They've both essentially been like monster movies. Self-contained, you've got, like, episode one was a little uh, little mini self-contained western monster movie. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in the second one, you wind up in the with the cave with the eye spiders and all that. It's another monster movie. And, I don't know, I'm hoping they change course and do something more along the lines of what they were doing last time yeah, around. Yeah, they, they do. You ever watch X-Files? Uh, I did back in the day. So, um, you know how, like, there was there was really multiple plot lines going on, but you could deduce it down to two. It's like you got the alien plot line, <laughs> yeah. and you got the monsters of the week. And I, I've I've got that vibe with Mandalorian a time or two. And and I think that would have been fine this time around if they had had if they had spaced them out. 
Mm-hmm. Like if there wasn't one following right on the heels of another, you know, monster movie. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have sure. no issues with that that concept, but when it's back to back and then you know just keeps it's kind of like well. It didn't move the plot forward. That's how I felt with the last episode. It was cool. Yeah. But when it was over, I was like, oh, it's over. Nothing happened. Yeah. He has not actually gotten very far from, in you know, the season started. Man, and too, I was joking with my wife about this uh, last night or something, but it, man, it's really stressing me out, baby Yoda eating all those eggs. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, it was weird. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, those are, yeah, that. that person's she, she's offspring super and, worried yeah. about her eggs and, 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 and they played it for comedy relief you know like, you know the child sitting over there and occasionally he just like sucks one down you know <laughs> the very like, end like that's a little unsettling oh man <laughs> yeah that ice spider scene was intense dude i was yeah it's very that series is very well crafted favreau know? who would i mean i know he did some work on like uh, the clones war cartoon or right. Clone wars cartoon right but Man, you wouldn't think that guy would be doing as good of a job as he did. As it, he's doing, it's so superior to me over the last three movies. Yeah, you know, it's it returns back to the old original lean storytelling of Star Wars, and it's not geared for I don't know popular youth consumption, I guess. <laughs> And two, I like it. I like it for that nostalgia of the original trilogy sort yeah. of throwback. But I also like it, man. I feel like Mandalorian's a little bit of a standalone. Like you could, yeah, you could you come in on Mandalorian and not be a huge Star Wars. And I have a good friend who is not, and she said she likes the series because it doesn't require extensive prior knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can I see that that point. Yeah. Well, and if she wanted that prior knowledge, she's watching on Disney Plus, where all Star They're Wars all there. are located. Right? Yeah. 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 When my wife had COVID, she watched, she watched the whole original trilogy, and then we had recently seen the newer trilogy. Um, but she watched the first two movies in the newer trilogy too. And she didn't. She, she got better from COVID and stopped watching Star Wars. I have a tendency when I'm holed up sick, uh, I'll watch something like uh, the old miniseries Shogun. You ever seen Shogun? Uh, no. With no, no, no. Uh, Richard Chamberlain, the old. It's based on the James Clavell novel. It's like twelve hours long. Is it a series? Yeah, it was. It yeah, was shown. I do know what you. That was when I was a TV, uh, kid. That was coming on TV. It was shown originally in like 1980, 81, somewhere back in there, and then it was syndicated. I think once after that, um, and I read the book when I was a kid. You know, it's this massive, epic oh, novel dude. by Clavel. You know, and uh, finally, you know, when I was a teenager, got a hold of a uh, a copy of the the miniseries, and now I have it on Blu-ray and watch it occasionally. And it's uh, yeah. You ever get into the old school uh, David Carradine Kung Fu series? Not really. I've watched some of it when I was a kid. Same, same. That same show you're mentioning, like I, I my uh, mother-in-law bought me the whole three seasons of Kung Fu. If you ever want to borrow, you can. But uh, that was like when I was a kid, um, that was another one that was coming on, like came on several different shows. Yeah. And they were even revamping it. Uh, the legend continues. I remember when that was on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Back when I was a teenager. Uh, I remember... A copy of a TV movie uh, that was made in the 70s. I don't know if it was a precursor to the original series of Kung Fu, or but I remember having a copy yeah, of that at one time yeah. when I was a kid. I want to say they're, they're like a couple of movies from that yeah. time, perhaps. I, just, I remember he's in the desert, and then uh, some guys come looking for him from his past. Uh, it's been 30 years. <laughs> so the, the the idea, what do you think about this, is that, uh, or have you heard that Bruce Lee came up with the whole concept for that show, and then they turned around 
took it, the whole concept, cast David Carradine, wouldn't cast him because he was Asian. I don't have enough knowledge to have an opinion. Honestly, yeah. I don't know enough about it to. That is, uh, that's something I've heard. Like, I got a ton. All those books right there on this side of the second shelf are Bruce Lee books, right? The second shelf down on, on closest to us. Right. I have several. Um, Taoji Kundo. Like, just being martial arts, like, you got to get into Bruce Lee. That's a Bruce Lee action figure right there. So, did, uh, did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood piss you off? Man, I'm kind of, after going through all this stuff with Bruce Lee, like, I don't have a very high opinion of the guy. Yeah. As a person. So there was a. It didn't piss me off too bad. It sure as hell pissed the family off. There was there was an arrogance there and an yeah. attitude yeah. that, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. I and I just I don't know. I love that movie. <laughs> oh, once upon a time, me yeah, too, yeah. man. I, I watched thing. it three times uh, since it's come out, and I want like back to back to back kind of yeah. a deal, like pretty pretty close close nearby. Best thing I've seen in years. It's a new release. Uh, yeah, when was it? Uh, I guess over the summer. I watched all of Tarantino's films. Yeah, see, and I'm generally not a Tarantino fan. Uh, Some of it's but trying the, for me. that one. That one I just love. Uh, yeah. There's been a, you know, I said I'm an old movie guy. Yeah, there's been a few movies in the last few years that I've liked. Uh, Kingdom of Heaven. Oh yeah, we I got to rewatch. Love that. it. I just saw uh, we were watching. What well, was Master and Commander? Yeah, yeah and yeah, it yeah. was uh, the advertisements at the beginning. You know, it, yeah. So have you seen the the extended director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven? Ooh, I want to say yeah. The uh, I think it's only available on the Blu-ray. Uh, it's got both versions, and it's like forty-five minutes longer. Okay. Uh, makes it a totally different. Yeah, the old cliche. It's a totally different movie. In this case, it is a totally different movie. Oh, I'll, I'll it look adds into that. plot lines and characters that weren't in the theatrical. Yeah. Hmm. That one's. I love that one. And uh, well, the the DVD I have is a two disc. But what you're saying, it maybe new. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know. I have the Blu-ray copy, but. You may have both versions. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great one. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood we talked about. Um, I love Haywire. Haywire? Gina Carano. Oh, yeah. Okay. Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. Do you think Gina Carano... So I've heard some weird things about Gina Carano uh, coming back to Mandalorian. First, she was recast, all that, everything's good. Um, and I guess she's in this season for sure. Right. But she apparently made and doubled down on some remarks and cancel culture's coming after. Really? Yeah. Mm. Like some transphobic stuff or, or something like that, right? That, uh, you know, that character's a fan favorite. Mm. It is. I mean, uh, I mean, she, yeah, she's a, fa- fa- you know, maybe I know her as being famous from MMA. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, but, uh, you know, and it, doesn't surprise me. Uh, a lot of MMA people have some weird. Have you ever heard of what Joe Rogan thinks about trans athletes? Mm. Surprise, because even people who don't listen to him knows what he, knows what he thinks about it. Because he he comes down hard against it. He's like, you mean to tell me this person who's lived as a biological male since this, you know, all the way like they had kids as a biological male with their wife, right? And then they take some drugs and and get a surgery, and now they're beating the shit out of women in the cage. And he's taken a lot of crit- criticism for for saying that. And I'm just repeating Joe Rogan's thoughts on that. But um, that has spread like wildfire. I mean, Joe Rogan's national taekwondo champion, jiu-jitsu black belt, UFC commentator. So everybody that is in martial arts listens to him. Well, if they if they ax her for Mandalorian, that, yeah, I don't know. That will hurt the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that, you know, that character brings a good angle. Yeah. You know, and one thing I admire about Gina Carano, she is who she is. And she doesn't kowtow or bend to popular opinion and, 
you know, I admire that for her. And speaker, she could kick us both in the head and knock us out. That's true. Uh, and yeah. I like that about her. <laughs> and and be attractive while doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's like my wife is a she is an amateur. You know, Gina Cron is a pro and professional amateur, but as a amateur, my wife won two kickboxing world championships. Right. Uh, and is like now a holy terror to deal with. She's getting a jujitsu bite belt this Thursday. <laughs> after it, it, it takes eight to twelve years to get a jujitsu for you bite to belt. deal with or in, to deal with in general. <laughs> Dude, it, both, both. But she, I mean, you know, she she could take on. I mean, over the years, guys have come in bigger than her, stronger than her, and she right. just has her way. Right. Like whether it's on the ground or sparring or whatever, and it's it's a rude awakening for people to get. You know, for me, one of my original instructors was like this: 142 pounds, soaking wet, six foot two, skinny, and two. He, I was thinking about him earlier. He was born with a club foot. And his dad made him, his dad was one of these, uh, a former Green Beret, I think I've told you about in the past, a 66 to 68 South mm -hmm. American bunch. But his dad made him a special shoe that fixed his club foot. Really? By the time he's like three or four years old. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, like he described it to me, like put like a little plank up here in like the corner of it and it like. While he was growing? Yeah. Basically just reshaped it and formed it. And, yeah. Huh. Yeah. So, but this guy goes on now. He owns the biggest martial arts gym in the whole state. Right. Uh, but um, when I was like, my revel revelation of training martial arts, I'm training there. And I realized, I'm like, this dorky looking dude who, if I saw walking down the street, I'd be like, beat that dude's ass. Like, and the fact of the matter is, I got, at that time, I had no chance. One time he hit me with a body hook. And let's just say, I was excreting blood. Uh, when I went to the bathroom, <laughs> yeah. right? Like he hit yeah. me in the kidney from behind. Yeah. So, Something internal is leaking. <laughs> and man, yeah. it put me down to a knee. I'll never forget the way it felt, but I was like, oh. it was stung. It's like somebody stuck me with a knife in my kidney. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at that time, I was like, Young, aggressive, had played football, had come in, was, was and was learning. I was like, thought I you were a tough guy. <laughs> and then you got this hundred and forty pound dude just like uh, neutralizing you. Yeah, yeah. And even my high school tailback, all state, only guy on the team that got all state that year, and he was like, that dude could beat our ass. Like it was blowing his mind. I was just like, I know, man. So I told you to come down here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But imagine that being also like all that. Imagine that being a female that that's your revelation. Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, they're clearly it's been demonstrated they're capable of it. You know. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the election for a second, yeah. uh, without you know alienating or dividing the nation further or, <laughs> or, or our friends. Good luck. <laughs> uh, you know, it is interesting if I guess I mean as I understand it, Biden's going to be the guy. But as I also understand it, we're not quite there yet. You got any assessment on that? Uh, I yeah, I think legal challenges usually don't pan out in these things. Huh. You know, what do you have you charted? So in Michigan and another state, there was a computer voting issue, and I honestly haven't been following. Okay, God, uh, be honest with you, I was tired enough of the whole thing. I just checked out right before you got here. I'd seen somebody making some divisive statements and I, I made a statement on Facebook about it. I was like if this is you making these divisive statements so you, you're you gone like, I'm, I'm either going to unfriend you or unfollow you depending on who you are yeah. we don't need this right now right but uh, there were some computer glitches even here in Polk County 
in Russellville. Right. There was the same computer issue that they had in Michigan, and I think Georgia it was, but uh, this was what happened in Russellville. They reported on like, oh, well, we just removed that machine. It's fine. I'm sure that it won't happen with any of the other machines. I'm sure it hasn't happened with any. Hmm. But you would vote for for Trump or for in, in this instance, it was you would click for Trump and it would go to Biden. Wow. And they removed that. That happened in Russellville. But then nationally, there was, uh, and I think it was 6,000 votes that were cast for, which we're talking like a 5 million margin. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But there was uh, 6,000 votes cast for Biden that were supposed to go to Trump. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are the sorts of legal challenges uh, that I don't know, like what you're saying. It's like anytime there's been a recount, yeah. I don't think there's been uh, a ton of uh, a yeah. ton of issues. But let me show you uh, something here real quick that that's something for us to think back on in history. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Who can forget 20 years ago? Yeah. yeah. President Gore, the Washington Times election special. Florida pushes Gore over the top with a bare majority. Now that was, uh, I don't remember. I need to, I need to compare the date of that article, but that went on for a few weeks. Yeah. I remember the next morning thinking there was going to be, and then it was just like, well, there's this issue with this Uh, state where the secretary, secretary of state got involved and down there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, yeah. You remember the good old days when we had an election and the next morning we knew who won? Remember those days? Those are the days. Better times. Well, I was thinking about this. Like, are we going to have to physically cast all our ballots to avoid? I don't, I'm I'm not trying to be paranoid, but I do because of the, I don't trust computer voting at all. Yeah. Like, I don't think we should leave democracy to that. Well, you know. One thing, I mean, glitches are like you're talking about. You know, I also wonder if it leaves it open to intentional shenanigans. <laughs> well, that <laughs> you know? was uh, that came up in the last election. There were some voting machines across the country that were removed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in a similar, I don't, I can't recall what the story was, but there was, there's a few of them that that had issues where they're like, oh, we got to remove those, we yeah. get them out. Right. And that was that was what was being tied. It just it it undermines everybody's. Yeah. No, faith yeah. And, in democracy in the system. If there's a process in this country you should have faith and confidence in, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know? I didn't even, you know, and maybe I'm just not understanding the uh, the issue, but I didn't have as much of a problem with the mail-in voting as I did with the computer voting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm old school. I mean, we've always had absentee ballots and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. so there's kind of a, a precedent there. I you know, the difference, I think, is just scale and circumstance now. Because of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah that's what really shifted it for me. But right. Right. You know, I don't know. I, frankly, I got to a point where I thought, you know, I don't want to vote for either one of these guys. So, that's, that's where I was. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm not too much of a fan of either major party anymore at this point. So, mm. you know, I don't know. It, for me, it was a lesser of two evils kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Man, it's uh, came down to who I thought would do the least amount of damage. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's been a wild year. That's just the best way. To say. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just glad that we're we're leaving this year behind. We're moving on. It's almost over. Hopefully, um, there's less division in 2021. Well, you know, 
people say that about, oh, we got to get 2020 behind us. And then I'm thinking, well, you know, things like pandemics don't care about calendars. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just saying. So do you have any um, thoughts on, uh, you know, this hasn't been talked about a ton, but that, that there have been waves, like the Spanish flu. There was the definitive yeah. waves. Billy Reader, my friend, he lives in Perryville. Yeah. Um, his grandma died in the third wave of the Spanish flu. Okay. Her great grandma won. We talking I, like nineteen eighteen? Yeah, this would have been like she would have gotten, like this would have been nineteen nineteen, I think, when she passed away. Okay. Like, it, it, so there was looking back on that pandemic. There's like okay, there were multiple waves of that hit people, and did certain people died in certain waves. And that people. apparently was just a uh, standard flu that was particularly virulent that time around. If memory serves, right? Yeah. I mean, it was. They just call it Spanish flu because where it arose. Doesn't memory serve? Um. Partially, it was so. That's in World War at the end, tail end of World War One. Right, and they call it the Spanish flu because Spain, right, was the only nation that reported on it. Ah, gotcha. Right, like all everybody else was like, "Don't tell them that our soldiers are sick," you know. So then that uh, Spain started reporting on it, and that's kind of how it came to national attention. And you know, you have these things throughout human history, going back to you know episodes of plague. Or you know Spanish flu, and you know there's a there's been a couple of them in Greece that they really weren't sure what it was, mm-hmm. you know where uh, an epidemic went through and killed people off, and it it seems to just be a pattern in uh, in human history. That's uh, 1798 when Napoleon went, so that he was afraid the Turks were going to invade Egypt, right? And he didn't want he he invaded them first, right? Just to Syria, preemptive invasion, yeah. Very Roman. Yeah. Um, true, true. <laughs> we, yeah. we never committed an act we of aggression. We think you may be a problem in the future, so we're years. just coming on over. Yeah, I love, I love telling the students about that. I'm like, you know, Rome never committed an act of aggression, and Egypt never lost a battle. Yeah. Like, that's, a, you know, the Exodus story. People give that story a lot of shit. But I'm like, we're talking about a nation that never once reported anything bad happening. Yeah. Right? Like, you think they wouldn't leave that story out? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. So, like, it, uh, one of the Egyptologists I follow, he's like, yeah, the pharaohs never lost. They would just be in Syria, and then they would they would lose their way back down. It's and the next thing you know, they're at Memphis, and they're still losing. They just keep retreating. Advancing in the other direction. Yeah. 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 All the way back to Thebes. Strategic withdrawal, I believe the, the British refer to it. You know, there's a, <laughs> there's something in... Uh, in jiu-jitsu, the, the sport people will do where um, basically I will just pull you down on top of me between my legs. Mm-hmm. They call it pulling guard. And uh, some guy was joking about it. That's a military dude. He's a former Green Beret, but more modern era. And uh, he calls that tactical retreat. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, think about it. Like, you're fighting somebody. You don't want to be on bottom. Yeah. Like, I know jiu-jitsu. And I still, like, with my back and stuff these days, I'm like, eh, I'd rather be on top. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anything would be easier. Gravity would be smack. You know, it'd be great. Yeah, but yeah, tactical, tactical retreat. Yeah, going back to the Civil War, we were talking about Forrest. I forget what engagement it was, but uh, you know, he got encircled one time and you know was attacking one direction. They told him that uh, the Union was attacking in the rear. He said, "Well, attack both ways then." You know. Yeah. <laughs> so and they they got out of it. You know? Yeah. Oof. Man. Military history is so fast. I had a military historian on recently. One of these guys just got his PhD. Right. And he wrote um, uh, his dissertation about some unit that's from New Hampshire that served in St. Augustine. This is, I can't tell you a ton about it. I got to upload the podcast. We just did it. But um, 
it's like one of those things like, man, I got to go research into this more. <laughs> right. But it was, uh, he made some interesting points about like basically that the diversity of interactions in St. Augustine during the Civil War between Union soldiers and civilians, uh, former slaves, just different like this, like how diverse of a region it was and what, how certain soldiers treated uh, different people. It's, I need to get more into what he's done, see if I can't you know, read his actual uh, dissertation. Sure, so, right, yeah. But yeah. Uh, this is uh, one uh, girl I went to grad school with. It's her husband. And she's still yeah. getting her PhD. She's been on a few times, and uh, he just graduated. So yeah, and he's but he I bring him up because he's his whole bag is like military history, right? Right. I was like, well, we should talk about the Mongols or the Comanche <laughs> or something, you know? Let's let's plan some other episodes, right? Right. So we are we're gonna do some some sort of military history uh, discussions on down the road. Nice. So we were nice. we were geeking out on it at the end once we realized we could have more talks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, dude. Uh, we can go ahead and wrap it up, man. Um, yeah. Dude, it's been a, I, as always, no shortage of, of talking. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. Well, man, know. it's nice to not just get a little 10, 15 minute or less uh, snippet of, of a conversation with you. Which so. is, yeah, usually in passing in the hallway is how we, uh, so I don't know how informative or entertaining it was, but, you know, I enjoyed it anyway. <laughs> hey, man, it's, um, that guy, I have a great audience for, for what I'm doing in here. I shared, uh, a girl that is a local she used to work at the newspaper and her episode got a thousand views and it's like wow. she's not and i'll do like a jujitsu guy that's kind of famous or something he'll digital zoom in or and uh and i get i get decent follows uh okay. decent views in the audio it's it's a little harder to chart the audio because i have it so many places but right i get more audio listens than anything else well and people tend to listen while they're doing something else it's like your audio books. You know, you can work out and you can listen. You can, you know, so it makes sense that audio traffic would be higher. Yeah. Well, in audios, uh, so like Joe in Rogan's, the car. Yeah. Joe Rogan's podcast just went over to Spotify. Right. And you can listen to the audio, but it plays the video simultaneously. Mm-hmm. On Spotify, I didn't even know Spotify had video till that. Right. Which they kind of rolled it out simultaneously. But uh, Audible, I mentioned, uh, the audio book place, starting to do podcasts. So it's an interesting time, but I think, too, it's a strange time because there's some censorship going on, uh, right? Yeah. Like everybody connected to Joe Rogan has been censored. Joe Rogan's been censored on YouTube multiple times. That's why he went to Spotify. Right? Gotcha. Okay. Uh, he's been getting blasted recently because he talks about Biden's declining mental state. But I'll say on this, I didn't know this, and maybe this is just a cover, but people are saying he's a lifelong stutterer. Hmm. You know, I, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm not a fan of censorship at all. We were talking about Gina Carano earlier. I, I admire her because she she says what she says, and you know she is honest about how she feels about things. And that's we need more of that. Yeah. Without impinging on people's free speech, if you feel something, you should be able to express how you honestly feel about something, regardless of what your opinion is. Well, in regards to every the the big thing is now well. Well, Spotify is its own company or whoever it is, YouTube. And that's why, you know, they don't want you to say it. You can't. Yeah. And they, there's a lot of speculation that that amendment will be carried over to social media and that it's not cyber law. Right. We're, I remember when I was in school, they're like, cyber law is going to be 
the biggest uh, thing happening in our country that's going to be new amendments are going to be based off of things we're seeing on, on in the digital age. Right. Sure. So well, everything constantly evolves, you know, and the world adapts. Yeah. So and law and you know adapts along with it. Yeah. Yep, even though there's a crazy lag on it most of the time. <laughs> That's the, I guess, the, the brooding factions that the founding fathers talked about. Everybody be arguing so much, nobody will take over. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> Just be a constant state of uh, argument and flux without dominance. I think, it was, I think it was Madison that said that. He's like, there'll be so many factions, no one will take over. And I'm just like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> sounds, that's like, this is what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Perpetual chaos and uh, arguing. Yeah. Uh, well, dude, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, I was looking for forward to this. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure I've got a few people down at, at work that listen to this. That, uh, so Danae from down the hall, she comes in and says, uh, she listens to, oh, I heard you say this. What were you saying about that? Right. And I'm like, you listen to my podcast? <laughs> so shout out. Shout out to Danae if you're listening. Uh-huh. I appreciate the the support. Yeah, thanks, Dan. All right, yeah, <laughs> we're well, right on, man. We'll go ahead and wrap it up, Justin. Appreciate right. you, dude. Thanks.